Hi, I'm Matt Williams. Welcome to Glimpses. Uh, my guest today is an incredibly talented and prolific screenwriter and producer. I won't list all of his credits because that would take the entire podcast, I promise you. Just just the failure, failed ones. I'll list all the ones that failed. Okay. okay. Uh, he hasn't had that many. Uh, he has received three Emmy Awards, four Peabody Awards, three Writers Guild Awards, and four Television Critics Association Awards, the Cable Ace Awards, the Humanitas Prize, and it goes on and on. He created the series Oz, Borgia, Homicide, Life on the Street, and co-created Copper, as well as creating or writing a number of other shows. So, Mr. Tom Fontana, I'm thrilled to have you on Clemson. I'm happy to be here. It's good to see you. You know what I realized? You and I were born in the same year. Really? You 19... look so much better than I do. How's <laughs> no, I that possible? Not, I don't, wouldn't agree with that, but 1951. Yes. And I like to think that we're like wine. We get better with age, right? God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the fact that we were born in the same year, and we both started writing in television, I believe, the same year. Mm. I began on the Cosby Show in... I started in... Uh, on St. Uh, Elsewhere. Uh, I think 80, 81, something like that. Okay, you were there a year or two before me, but I, uh, th we were both starting television about the same time, and you started on St. Elsewhere. Yes, yes. Now, the story goes, Gwyneth Paltrow and Jake Paltrow saw the Spectre by Bridegroom, your play. Right, well, Blythe Danner, their mother took them to the play because they were very little. They were little, but yeah. Blythe took them and it was at the Williamstown Theater Festival. And supposedly, I don't know if this is myth or not, they said, you have to hire this writer for your new TV show, St. Elsewhere. Is that true? Is that Hollywood myth? No, no, it's actually true. It's it's actually, it's a, it's a, a, Bruce, Blythe said to Bruce, you have to go see Tom's play. And the theater that my, my play was in, which was the second company, was down the driveway from the house they had rented in Williamstown. Okay. So he had to pass it every time and and it was in repertory. So he had the whole summer to see it and and he never went to see it. So in my mind, if he had seen it, he never would have hired me for St. <laughs> Elsewhere. And I'd still be doing plays in a, you know in a barn somewhere. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well all that training in theater, I found that in my early career, a lot of playwrights made the transition into TV pretty easily. Did you find that? I did, but because Bruce was such a great mentor. What did he teach you? Well, I mean, two things. One is he said to me, um, uh, uh, I'm paying, uh, he said, I'm paying uh, retail and you're giving me wholesale because I was trying to imitate other doctor shows. Okay. And he said, I don't want that from you. I didn't bring you here for that. I brought you here to make me go holy. That uh, We've never seen this on TV right. before. So that was the number one lesson was I didn't have to copy, you know, all those medical shows like Marcus Welby and Dr. Kildare. And, right. uh, and, and the second thing he said to me is stop thinking of the proscenium stage. He said, you have to start seeing it 
And he didn't say through the camera. He said through the way you see life. So he said, there are times where you see people in a medium shot, and there are times when you see a wide shot, depending on where you are and who you're talking to. And that was enormously uh, helpful to me in terms of, not that I ever, I don't ever actually write um, camera direction. Right. But in terms of being able to imagine it, um, that that actually was extraordinary. I ask this often of playwrights, but now since you're both playwright and television, when you go to write a script, do you see it or do you hear it first? Or does it happen simultaneously? By this point, it sort of all happens at the same, yeah, same. at the same time. Okay. Early on, it was I only I only saw the words on the page. Right. I, I didn't couldn't, you know. I also I'm one of these I'm I'm a writer who never you know, you you always hear about writers who go, Yes, when I was writing this, I wrote this for, you know, George Clooney. Right. And I always think, well, George Clooney's not going to do this. So why am I going to think about George Clooney? So I never think of a specific actor. I always try to identify it with a with a person. But here's the thing about your writing. The characters you create are always multi-layered. They're complex. Do, I mean, they're really strong characters. And is that because of theater? Is it just because you love actors? I mean, well, I mean, our trust the, actors. The, the 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 thing is, the thing about. I mean, I was a terrible playwright, and um, I truly was a terrible playwright. Um, but I I studied by my own decision, uh, Chekhov and Shakespeare. You know, the 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 greats. Right. And that probably intimidated me even more right. than I was. But um, you know, there's uh, for me, there's no greater. Uh, playwright than than Chekhov, and I know. I mean, I love Shakespeare too, but right. but Chekhov is about character and the nuance of character and the and the levels. And so I think I learned more reading Chekhov than uh, I did a, 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 in any other way as a playwright. Um, yeah, uh, it it um, he really he really has been sort of the the angel on my shoulder Whispering all these years. Year. Yeah. And I read somewhere that when you sit down to define your characters, you say there's three parts. That's right. Head, heart, genitalia. Right. Right? Do you want to explain that? Well, um, and, and, uh, and a lot of it you never use, and, 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 uh, but it's good to have some sense of it. And what you, what you want to know is uh, how does the person think? How are they educated or not educated? Um, uh, what are they... What are they what are their like philosophical thoughts if they have any then the heart is like what makes them laugh what makes them cry what makes them love and then the genitalia is well, who they want to be in bed with right uh, and uh and if you can answer those kinds of questions you get a pretty full sense of who the character uh will be well you've you've created Wonderful characters, and you've worked with incredible actors. I won't even, Al Pacino, J.K. Simmons, Ernie Hutt, the whole list of all of this. <clears throat> you told me something years ago when you were doing Oz that I forget if it was the second or third season, you were well into the series. And you said, I went to the actors before I started writing the new season. And you talked to each actor and said, 
who is your character, what's going on with you, what would you like to play, right? Yeah. You want to yeah. elaborate on that? Well, first of all, I mean, when you know this, when you start a series, you know everything about the character. As the writer. And the, yeah, as the writer, right. and the actors know nothing. So they're constantly coming to you going like, well, uh, you know, I'm doing this because of... Uh, and what happens, especially with the really, really good uh, actors, is very quickly they own the character. Right. And because you have to look at all of the characters, keep all the characters in mind, you're like happy that the the actor is taking taking possession of the uh, of the role. And so what happens is, um, if the, before I start writing, and, and this is true, this was true with Homicide, and it's been true with every series I've done since uh, Oz, is I I meet with the actors beforehand, one-on-one, -on -one, and I say, basically, what song haven't you sung? What what dance haven't you danced? And, um, and you know, I, I'll tell you a very quick story about Rita Moreno. I was having this conversation on Oz with Rita Moreno before the season started. And she said, you know, I think it'd be really kind of interesting. My character's a nun. If she if she was just a little bit like sexually attracted to one of the to one of the prisoners. And I said, Oh, okay, yeah, 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 okay, okay. Whole season went by. I did nothing with it. The next season, I had Chris Maloney now on the show. Right. And I made it I made it his character was the one who she was sexually attracted to. And she, when she read the script, she came, she goes, no, I was talking about like a little old man. I'm not talking about Maloney. How am I going to play this? But of course she did brilliantly. Of course. So, yeah. of course. But see, the fact that in television, I don't know if the listeners know this. Sometimes on television programs, there's an us-them mentality. Mm -hmm. There's the writers and the actors. And we don't talk to the actors and the actors are always pissed off at the writers. But I never did that. You never did that. And I think that's the theater training. Yeah. Because you have good actors, and you're right. Uh, home Improvement, any of these shows, after a while, they know those characters so well. Yeah. And the, and the smartest thing we do is hire really good actors. Yeah. And then stay out of their way as much as we possibly can. Yeah. And the ones that turn out to be not that uh, cooperative, uh, you kill them. <laughs> I mean, I've killed so many actors. <laughs> Dick Wolf and I actually have a joke between us about how many characters, regulars, that on shows we've done that we, we have like a, a tally board of, uh, I forget <laughs> who's winning right now, but. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now you you and Barry Levinson obviously worked together, TV production company, did uh, had a lot of success. Uh, was the success based on a director's mind and a writer's mind kind of bouncing off each other? What What, what was that? What was the chemistry there? Well, because Homicide was the first TV series that Barry was going to do, right? And and you know he had said to me, uh, "I I want to do a different kind of cop show," and I was like, "Well, what does that mean?" After Hill Street Blues, what could be better? Right. And he said, "No car chases and no gun battles," and I said, "That's impossible. I'll I'll do it," okay. because it seemed so incredibly insane. Yeah. To to and he said because. I want you because it's a character show. It's about these men and women who every day, every day of their lives see a dead body. And how does that, how does that make their lives change for better or for worse? So the challenge was, was very exciting. And he also was very much like, I'm just going to shoot this and we're going to jump cut and we're going to, the camera, it's all going to be handheld. We're just going to keep the camera moving. The actors are never going to know 
until the camera is on them that the camera is on them. So we're not going to do, we're not going to, okay, we'll shoot this side and then we'll turn around and shoot right. this side. It was totally like, it was like a free-for-all in a, a, creatively and, I mean, a controlled kind sure. of free-for-all. But it created the energy of the show and that look. Exactly. That very and, the, look. and the actors never had to go sit in their dressing rooms and wait an hour while the thing was re relit, while the stage was relit. So they were boom, 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 you know. Did you ever direct? No. God. Did you ever have any desire to direct? I've done second unit. Okay. Um, when when I when it, it, I needed to be that one of the, one of the times I directed was on Borgia, which you know we were shooting in uh, in Europe, and the director I needed I needed a shot of um, Lucrezia Borgia in a carriage, and she's trying to get somewhere, and two huge hogs cross her path <laughs> yes. and stop the stop her you know and so the director said geez i don't have time to do it can you do it and i said great hogs i direct hogs like nobody <laughs> else and uh you know then we ate them so <laughs> the it was ring. a perfect yeah <laughs> give me the bacon shot yeah <laughs> and we don't mean kevin bacon <laughs> no we mean the bacon shot well let's let's talk a little bit about oz because that was truly groundbreaking i mean when you all the multi storylines and the way you laced the narratives together, uh, talk about that show. Why? Why do you 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 describe it to someone? What's these guys in a very rough prison? But people were captivated. Does it go back to character again? Does it? Oh, oh, absolutely. What What I wanted. Well, first of all, you have to start with the idea that everybody in the prison has committed an extreme act. Okay. And maybe. Some have several times, but it, but everyone in the prison has has committed at least one extreme act. So what drove them to that act, and how much do they feel pride or regret for for what they've done? And then what I wanted to do was because up, I mean, in my mind, prisoners were faceless to America. Right. Okay. We don't, we don't, oh, they're in prison. They belong in prison. They should be in prison. You know, that the mentality is, was, was who cares about them? Right. I, so I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll start with um, giving the audience their expectation of who this character is and then start flipping it so that they have to recognize there are layers to this this preconceived idea they had maybe not as maybe their idea wasn't as uh, as true as they thought it was and and just when I would take a character and get the audience to feel uh, for them I would make them do something terrible so the audience had to go well wait a minute now wait but I like him but he did something terrible why did he do the terrible thing so uh, my thought was always to keep in the as in happens when in prison you cannot re relax right i never wanted the audience to relax i wanted the audience to always be leaning forward as opposed to sitting back but this goes back to multi-layered complex characters because it's you know people think of television especially procedurals mm -hmm. cookie cutters right yeah there's the good cop the bad cop there's this one but you, again, these characters are so rich, and you you do keep the audience on their toes, and always. Well, and and the great thing about doing a, a 
a, a show about prisons, and I visited a lot of prisons before I started writing, is that there were stories that had never been told. And I, I you know, and you're hearing it from the person's mouth, um, though I always adjusted it slightly because I never wanted them to, when they got out of prison, to come to my house and say, hey, you use my story. <laughs> where's my residuals? Yeah, where's my residuals? So, um, but... But just the just the just the so there were so many stories that no one had ever told, and I thought, well, if HBO is stupid enough to give me the opportunity, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. But you did research, and and here's the thing that I appreciate too about your writing. And I said this to Adriana Trigiani, who's a novelist and best-selling author. She does a lot of research too, but some writers like to parade their research. Mm. And you know what I mean by yeah. that? They, where you took that research and just what, what, however you did it through osmosis, embodied it in these characters who, and, and also you write relationships, hmm. not just characters. Yeah. You really write very complex relationships. Yeah. I, I, you know, the, the funny, when normally when, like when I was uh, going to start working on St. Elsewhere, I went to the hospital where my mother worked. And, and was allowed to wander the halls and go into, you know, operating rooms and the ER and all that stuff. And I took copious notes. And when I went to do the research for Oz, I thought, I'm not going to take any notes. I'm going to wait to see what just lands, stays Lands and stays in your yes, heart. Yeah. And it was fascinating because... Um, I, you know, I fed off that for the entire run of the of entire, entire run of the show. Okay. And your sister is a nun. Yes. Did she provide any research when you were doing Borgia? I mean, you're writing about the Vatican and power plays. Not, did you ever well, tap my, your sister and say, come on, tell me some nun truths? Yeah. The <laughs> thing is, my, my sister, she's, she's the sweetest woman on the planet. She uh, belongs to an order of nuns up in Buffalo, where I'm from. And they, um, when I was growing up and going to Catholic school, it was a very traditional, they were, you know, with the thing and the, the thing and the thing. Yeah. And then after uh, the Vatican Council, they became very socially oriented, social justice and all kinds of, and they left, more or less left teaching. And one of the things she did was the nun who was responsible at, uh, at uh, Attica for hospitality, meaning conjugal visits, um, my sister in the summer would go and uh, while she went on vacation, my, my sister would go and, and be the nun who was scheduling fucking, okay? <laughs> oh and it just seemed so incredibly impossible to me that my sweet nun of a sister would be going- Providing hospitality. Uh, providing hospitality. And, you know, because a lot of times- Prisoners sneak in a woman who's not their wife. And I say it's a little bit of a detective <laughs> case, too. A anyway, she, um, but, you know, they, they, know, they know virtually nothing about the way the Vatican works. So um, the only thing, as I said to her before Borgia started, I said, you know, uh, Charlene, um, I, this, uh, you know, I'm going to take the Vatican, you know, to task here. And I said, so, you know, I just, I'm just uh, worried that, you know, maybe you shouldn't watch it. And, you know, I might even get excommunicated. And she goes, oh, Tom, you were excommunicated after Oz. 
I was like, oh, but it's a double secret excommunication because they can't keep wanting the money. <laughs> I want to I want to talk a, a little bit about your process because you don't use a computer. Mm -mm. You write longhand on a yellow pad. I love yellow pad. Yeah, I, I get excited when I pull out a fresh yellow. Oh pad. my god! Your heart kind of flutters, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. You go, totally. oh, all these fresh ideas. But you write in the mornings. 5 a.m. every 5 morning. 5 a.m. every morning, and you write through the morning, and then that way your afternoons are free to produce or whatever you do, That's right? right. That's right. But because I'm done the most important thing in my career, I guess, I own the rest of the day. Yeah. In other words, you can come up and hit me in the head with a two-by-four, and I'll be, as I fall, I'll think, well, at least I wrote today. I wrote this morning. Yeah. How many hours do you write in the morning? It depends on what I'm working on. If I'm starting or if I'm I'm putzing, right. um, it depends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I think uh, David Henry Wong and other writers have been on the show, and I'm, I'm the same way the morning when you're closest to your dreams, before the monkey chatter of the day, yes. that's the best time to write. And yes. before the phone and the text and all. Uh, what, and, and L.A. opens. And L.A. opens, <laughs> yeah. But it is true in the morning, it's just so fr And then later in the day, I find I can, I can edit in the afternoon, mm -hmm. go back and read over and kind sure. of, you know, uh, prime the well for the next day's writing. Yeah. And do you ever find, because you write these incredible characters, do you ever find a character kind of getting away from you or taking you somewhere you didn't know you were going to go? Always, always, yeah. always. But isn't that the joy of writing? It's totally the joy because then you know they're living in a way that, you know, you want them to be living. They they, they should be as obstinate with you as they want to be. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting, and one of the reasons I stopped doing Oz, uh, because it was my decision, um, was it was following me around. We'd finished shooting the season. I'd have finished writing it. And it was like going, tapping me on the shoulder. And I'd be like, no, no, I don't want to think about you. I'm going to write Mar Little Mary Sunshine. I'm going to write something else. But it wouldn't leave me alone. And I thought, okay, maybe this is going to slide into me, I don't know, becoming Jack the Ripper or something. No, but that's interesting because I asked uh, James Manos Jr., who created Dexter. Yeah. I asked him, I said, when you were, you know, developing this show about a serial killer and every week you had to devise ways to kill and dismember bodies, did that? And he said it didn't. He said mm. he was able to throw the switch, but I'm like you. If I'm working on it, in a line at a deli or having yeah. anywhere, it's always kind of whispering in your ear, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think that's why the writers go crazy. <laughs> well, it's yeah, I think so. And drink to excess. And drink to, to um, excess. But I think it's, that's why, to me, it's important when I finish whatever I'm working on, a, a series or whatever, I immediately switch to something else. Not just another TV thing, but I will write a short story. Okay. I'll write a, um, a play, um, you know. You once told me you... Wrote or started a novel, and you said, "I don't like this." You said, oh my "You God. said I don't, I don't like this. I, is not what I do." Right? I, well, it, it is, it is hard. It's hard for me. I'm so in awe of people who can write novels. What happened was, um, uh, it, 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 I sold it to a publishing house, which I shall remain nameless because it's embarrassing, <laughs> and they paid me in advance. And so I was like, "Ooh, look at me, look at me!" And I started writing it, and nope, that's not it. And I'm oh, writing, no, that's not it. And 
I finally got to the end and I was like, oh man, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I handed it in and they were like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. We have some thoughts, blah, blah. So they gave it back to me. I started working on it again and then I made a huge mistake. I actually read it. And the minute I read it, I went, this is drivel. This is complete <laughs> and other crap. So I called the editor and I said to her, I said, look, this has been a terrible mistake and I don't blame you. I'm really quite, quite honored that you thought I could do this. I'm giving the money back and let's <laughs> never speak of this again. <laughs> but see, you were honest enough and objective enough to disengage, look at your, because some writers are precious about every comma, mm, yeah. to look at this and go, this ain't cutting it. Right. Yeah. But isn't that what we learn in television? There oh. are, there are no, there's nothing to be precious. You kill the babies because th that's your job. You have you know? to rewrite on the fly. You're yep. constantly rewriting, even on the set and something's not going right. You're there. It's constantly changing. Yeah. And I think that collaboration is the key to success in TV. You mm -hmm. have to be willing to, to, to give it up, throw yeah. out your baby. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that you were objective enough to say this novel isn't cutting it. And so you put it aside. When, 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 you know, when I'm doing a show, I have the final edit on the film and um, the number of times that I have written the most glorious speech, just the most per perfect speech ever in the history of the English language. On TV. <laughs> and, and an actor will turn, look at another actor and I go, oh, well, that's the speech. You don't. So need to I do don't it. need the speech, and and I happily cut it. But isn't that? See, I think that comes with maturity. That comes with experience. That comes with really knowing dramaturgy, and and the camera. I I always repeat this. The camera's there to record your thoughts, mm, right? Yeah. And that character actor may turn and look, and with that look, say everything you wrote for half a page, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's and that, a good actor. That's a good actor and it's a thrilling moment because you go, but you also, at least I justify it by going, he or she wouldn't have turned and given that look. If you hadn't written. If I hadn't written the speech that told them what this moment was. But don't you find the best actors always ask you why, why, why? You're, you're going through and they go, but why am I drinking water right? Why would I cross the room? They can drive you a little crazy, but the why is the answer, right? Well, I normally, coming from the theater, right. I normally say, you should ask the director that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be at craft service. <laughs> Having a bagel. Yeah. Let him ask. <laughs> he doesn't do anything anyway. Let him earn a little of the money. That's <laughs> <laughs> When you're creating, is there a spiritual aspect to it? Is it all intellect and instinct, or is there a spiritual aspect? I, I think, I mean, a lot of my work, uh, whether it's obvious or not, is about spirituality. And um, because I think, it's, I think it's important to, well, when writing, identify a character's um, beliefs. Um, but also because to me, uh, I, uh, I, that is part of being human and I want the audience to be wondering and questioning and, and trying to figure it out. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, my whole thing is there are no, I don't write to give answers. I don't write to preach. I write to ask questions and hopefully somebody in the audience has the answer and they'll text me. 
See, yeah. I think that is vital. I think for young writers to hear that, that it, uh, when you first start writing, you feel like you have to present the answers. Mm. Or, and, but your job as a writer is just to kind of poke the audience and ask the questions and then allow them That's right. to come to their own decisions. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book I've written is called Glimpses, a comedy writer's take on life, love, and all that spiritual stuff. <laughs> I like that. It's humorous essays and what I call spiritual musings. It's kind of a memoir in disguise, but the intent behind the book is to encourage the reader to look for and find little glimpses of God in daily life. Mm -hmm. And by God, I'm talking about moments of kindness, unexpected compassion, tenderness. Do you find glimpses in your daily life? Oh, absolutely. Do you? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I was raised Catholic and I always say I'm a half-assed Catholic um, uh, because there's a lot of it that I uh, am suspect of. Right. But there's a lot of it that I think is truly tremendous. And most stuff, most of the stuff I think is tremendous is the love, is the, is the, the idea that we all want love and we all should give love. And, and that it's easy to give love to a nice person, but to go the extra distance to somebody who's, who's really miserable, mm -hmm. um, that's where I think true love, uh, the spiritual love, uh, not the sexual love, but right. the spiritual love comes in. Because that's what, you know, all the greats, Jesus, uh, Buddha, everybody, you know, everybody, that's what they, that's what they're telling us. And, uh, I, unfortunately, we live in a world right now that uh, seems to have lost uh, lost that um, that very fragile piece of our humanity. That's the reason I wrote the book. Yeah, because I got so tired. And I'm truly not turning your podcast into my advertisement. I promise you. But <laughs> the reason I wrote the book is I got so tired of everyone telling me it's doom and gloom. We're all screwed. It's it's the world's falling up, and I go, I don't believe that, because on the street or uh, again. Going into a deli, anywhere, you see moments of kindness and tenderness, and pe people are good. But all we hear about is the negative. Yeah. And then it's not just, I disagree with you, Tom. Tom, you're stupid for believing that. Yeah. And that is really destructive because yeah. you, are, you are shaming the messenger. I may not agree with your political views or even your religion, but I can look at you, love you, and not judge you. Yeah. And if we can do that, boy, we take care of most of the problems on the planet. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And, and, and just to bring it back around to the, to the writing, when I have um, a staff of writers working on a show, um, I never say, uh, well, this is what I would do. Right. Because I think that's, that kills, uh, kills the creative. Uh, I always say, okay, what was, what was your intention here? Because maybe I'm not getting right. it, and I'd like to I'd like to know what's right, what's going on here, and um, and I also say to them, um, in the first draft, teach me what I don't know about my show, and in the second draft, I'll teach you what I do know about the show. That is brilliant. Well, that is it, brilliant. It's worked out for me. That's brilliant. You know, because again, you hire you hire writer. I I I hire writers. To me. You know, it's like an orchestra and you, you know, I play the tuba, okay? I don't need five tuba players. I need a violinist and a piccolo player and a drummer. Right. And so I have to respect the fact that they, that this person is a drummer 
And what they're bringing to it is the drumming. They're not bringing to it the tuba. Right. So, so it's important, uh, you know, uh, when you're creating a sort of commune of writers for each show, to to not only find writers who 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 surprise you in their writing, not just television writers, but you know, I've hired uh, you know play other playwrights, every, everybody, right. um, but 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 also to give them the the courage or the freedom to risk. Yes. without the judgment, potential judgment, you know, uh, because that I think is where it all gets, it all gets very dangerous. So my approach to uh, creating a, a writer's group for a show is always with the idea of, I'm these people are there because I love their writing and I want the best of their writing and I don't want them to write like me because I, I'm having enough trouble rewriting myself, <laughs> let alone rewriting them. No, that's great. And and uh, I, as we as we wrap up, I just want to say one thing. If you say the name Tom Fontana anywhere in New York in the writing community, the first words are "greatest guy." He was always so helpful. He really helped me with my career. You are truly uh, a mentor and an example to so many. And if every writer was like you, uh, we would have better shows and a better world. Well, I thank you for that. I could give you a list of people who hate my guts, but I'll save it for another time. Are they, are they network executives? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let me just finish with another uh, Bruce Paltrow story. When, you know, I was a wildly unsuccessful playwright. I had no money. He, he put me in, in on St. Elsewhere and I started to make real money. And about a year or so in, I said, Bruce, how, how am I ever going to thank you? And Bruce went, you can't. You'll never be able to thank me. And I said, so what do I do? And he goes, pass it on. And that's all I've been doing is paying back Bruce Paltrow for his generosity. Tom, that is brilliant. And I think that's a good note to end this on. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Uh, that's it for this podcast, and I encourage all of you as you go about your day, take the time to look around and uh, catch a glimpse. My friends, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of Glimpses. Speaking of, Glimpses is now available for purchase at your online retailer of choice. And the best part, every penny earned will be going to charities who support children in need. You can get your copy in the link below. Until next time, have an amazing day.